Okay. Well, I think everyone has made it from upstairs to downstairs, so that's good. Uh, good to have everyone here tonight. Uh, so glad you could make it. And uh, we, uh, we're excited for our presentation today. Uh, we welcome you. Uh, and also, uh, if you didn't know, uh, Pastor Zwanitzer, I think he's going to attend a little bit later. Yes. But uh, he was sort of the founder of the feast. This is the apologetics conference that you're attending. So uh, we welcome you to our annual apologetics conference. Uh, we thank Tony DiMercurio, as well as the Board of Evangelism, for hosting at Emmanuel. Uh, they did such hard work. The folders in your hands, as well as all the contacts made, was all their work. So uh, we give thanks to God for them. Uh, just to tell you how the evening's going to go, we're going to go 7 to 8 uh, as uh, the first part, and then we'll take sort of a break, and then we'll come back at 8.30 for the second part, uh, but that's flexible, so uh, Pastor Murphy and myself have already talked about that, so uh, if we go over a little bit in each way, uh, you'll, you'll get a chance to eat something, so that's the best of all. Also, uh, Pastor Burfield's book is available uh, on the table here, fifteen dollars. Uh, you know, we're we're not going to keep you know accounting, but just put the money uh, in, the, in the bag. Sure, on work. the table. <laughs> you know, okay, somewhere over there. Uh, and then uh, Pastor Basley has uh, generously donated his books, uh, so you can take one for free uh, if you don't have one already. It follows the church here. It's Martin Luther uh, in his postal, his house postal sermons. And it really is a fantastic resource, a great devotion uh, day by day. Uh, all right. Well, Pastor Burfine, uh, am I saying that right? Yes. Oh, okay. Burfine. Burfine. Thank you. So you said Peter Burfine. All right. Burfine. So we have, today we have Pastor Peter Burfine, our presenter. He received his Bachelor of Arts in History and Theology from Marquette University in Milwaukee in 91. His MDiv from Concordia Seminary St. Louis in 1996, which I will graciously forgive you for. Um, <laughs> Four way, okay. uh, he has served an LCMS congregation in Toledo, Ohio, and is currently serving as an army chaplain, as well as being sole pastor to Agnes Day Lutheran Church in Marshall, Michigan, and our Sacred Lutheran Church in Union City. Reverend Burfine produces, Burfine produces uh, literature and Sunday school materials to feed the souls of Jesus' young lambs. And for us who are a bit longer in the tooth, we are thankful for his having written and produced Gnostic America in 2014. Uh, you, may, you may read more about his works available in the literature you've received tonight. So if you open that folder, you'll have more in there. Uh, since publishing his book, Reverend Burfine has been a popular lecturer and become a, a familiar feature on the internet through such venues as Issues Etc. and The Federalist. Uh, Reverend Burfine currently resides in Marshall, Michigan with his wife, Jillian, and four children. So will you please give a warm welcome to Reverend Peter Burfine. Thank you. So Gnosticism, <laughs> and uh, Gnosticism is a huge topic, and we're going to just broach the surface of it, but I really wanted to gear Gnosticism as far as it has to do with apologetics. So let me just get a show of hands. How many of you have heard Gnosticism? Okay, so most of you are somewhat familiar with it. Are most of you familiar at least with the basic structure of Gnosticism and kind of what they believe? And we're, we're going to get in, into that. Um, we're not going to get into so much historic Gnosticism, and you know, there's a bunch of uh, schools of thought in the ancient world that were Gnostic: the Valentinians, the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Manichaeism, 
all these, I'm not gonna get into it because that's, this is the point of Gnosticism, okay? Um, but Gnosticism, when I was doing the research for this topic, it was like going into a mansion and every room you go into, there's like four doors. And then you're like, oh, okay, this is an interesting room. Well, what's, what's behind that door? And you open that up and there's another room with a bunch of doors in it. And you're like, oh, I gotta, you, it's a rabbit hole. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper and you kind of exhaust, you start exhausting your, your, your spiritual ability to handle what's going on here. Because this is the devil's theology. So anyways, as, I, as I'm getting into this and getting deeper and deeper into it, and finally I'm just like, I gotta write something. I gotta just stop and write what I've got. So th this is, what, I guess what I'm saying is that the book itself is just kind of like a tip of the iceberg of what Gnosticism is involved in. And tonight you're getting like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Because <laughs> we got two hours to get into this, all right? So that being said, that I'm gonna take this huge topic and apply it to apologetics. I've actually got two theses that I'm gonna work with tonight. And the first one is Gnosticism is on the rise. You've heard his expression, spiritual but not religious. That is a Gnostic phrase. When the term woke came up, you've all heard the term, why are you woke? That is straight from Gnosticism. For, and that's one of the big things we're gonna get into tonight. But that, when that came on, I'm like, I've been screaming this in the wilderness for the last three years, you know, this woke idea. Um, the transgenderism, the no borders idea of you know, countries shouldn't have borders. Um, the, the erosion of marriage. These are all not only just kind of Gnostic in the sense of like, you know how it is when you got a boogeyman, you know, like, oh, that's Gnostic. You know, that's the devil. He's lurking behind everything. But just organic connections over time through, uh, that you can locate historically. That's what's fascinating about Gnostic. That's, that's why I kept on opening the doors and like, oh my goodness, there's a path I can take here. Because like I said, there's organic philosophical connections that take you back to these demonic ideas that have been happening throughout, throughout history. So, Gnosticism is the devil's theology, promised to be with us to the end of time. And we're going to talk about that verse that talks about that. Gnosticism is a rejection of God's creation, of nature and reality, a radical change from an outside-in process of engaging the world to an inside-out process of projecting inner psychic mechanisms on reality. So in other words, the, the way we, well, we'll get into that. I don't want to spend my whole time on this one slide. <laughs> uh, language, this, this is the big point for apologetics. Language, rationality, and grammar, the logos, what we connect with this idea of the logos in, in Johannine, the, the Gospel of John, and the, the logos, we're going to get into that. Language, rationality, and grammar is the center of this battle because language reflects reality and reality is claimed to be unreal, so language must be unreal. Okay, so these are the theses we're gonna get into and I got, it, you got them written down in the paper. You can look at them. The second theses, thesis that we're gonna look at, and this is in the next session, is the, this whole kind of uh, political moment we are in that is authoritarian, totalitarian, is rooted in a, in a political philosopher from the uh, 1700s named Hegel. He was a Lutheran. He was a Lutheran pietist. And his ideas were Lutheran pietistic ideas. Which, you know, to summarize this thesis, and we'll, we'll get to it in the next session, that means that Lutherans are poised more than any other denomination, religious group, 
to really address some of the dangers going, going on, these, these uh, spiritual energies that have been released, Lutherans, con confessional conservative Lutheran theologians and thinkers are poised to answer and address what's going on here. Because it started as a Lutheran heresy. And, and it, I'm just dumbfounded by that. It's, it's a truly fascinating story, and we're going to tell that in the next session. All right, so let's start with Jesus. Identifying the demon, what is your name? When Jesus went into the uh, Gadarene demoniac, am I saying that right, pastors? Gadarene, Gadarene, whatever. He has this, this demon, the demonically possessed person comes up to him, and what does Jesus say? He says, what is your name? And by naming it, and what, what did the demons say? Oh, we're a legion. We're a network of incongruent spiritual forces that can't be named. You can't name us. We're just a legion. And Jesus wants to get at the name. By, by naming something, name it, claim it. By naming something, you can identify what you're dealing with. How often have you had, you know, or you know someone that might have some sort of a, a mental health, I mean, I'm an army chaplain, and you run into this a lot. They just got something going on, and they don't know what's going on. And once you diagnose it and name it, well, what now? Now you can deal with it. Now you can apply a rational solution to the issue. Well, right now we're in the middle of this sort of like, you know, I'll read articles by these, by these people, and they're like, what is going on? I can't explain what's going on. Why is, in a liberal democracy, we're, we're so, um, you know, authoritarian when it comes to free speech? What is going on? I'm like, I know what's going on. This is something demonic, and you can't, you, it's, it, when at first, when you're dealing with it, you don't really know exactly what's going on, and, and you have to name it. And, and I think that's one of the most important things we need to be doing is naming. This is Gnosticism, and let me explain to you exactly what that is. All right. Okay, my next slide there. All right. So here's the issue for apologetics. So I got this conversation going on between two people, and typical, you know, you're, you're meeting someone who's maybe not in a church or not a Christian, maybe is a Christian, and you're talking to them, and here's how the conversation goes. You make an apologetics, a classic apologetics argument. Jesus rose from the dead and was witnessed by 500 people. This is a truth claim to consider. 50 years ago, you would start debating that point, right? You'd rationally debate that point and say, like, well, blah, 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 and you'd argue back and forth. You would have a discussion. You would have dialogue. You'd be using words to arrive at a truth. Next person says, you're just saying that as a white man who's propping up his power and privilege. Doesn't deal with the rationality, the rational basis for what he's saying, because that's, that's irrelevant. So he says, but it's a truth claim that has nothing to do with me. Like, he, he doesn't get what she's saying. And then she says, well, truth is a construct that you're in bondage to. You don't know that your mind is trapped in these constructs. You need to be woke to what I realize, that we're all just in bondage to our the, 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 these mental constructs that tell us how we think and what we do. So you say that Jesus rose from the dead and was witnessed by 500 people. This is a truth claim to consider. Well, what if I don't believe in the idea of an objective truth? What if I don't believe in the idea of a rational argument? What if I don't believe in the idea of language? Right? So they're not even have they can't have a conversation with each other, which each other can they? Well, this is the issue for apologetics because all along our apologetics have been, oh, let's discuss this, let's let's debate this, let's prove that Christ is God, let's prove that the Bible is the Word of God, and suddenly we're in like la la land of, well, you're just a white man. 
you know, so this, this is a problem. And, but this is exactly where we are in our society right now. This is, this is the challenge. All right. So the, I want you to understand a few points before we dive into things. And one of them is the Cretan's Paradox. Have any of you ever heard of the Cretan's Paradox? A Cretan says all Cretans are liars. Is the Cretan to be believed? Pinocchio says my nose will grow now. If his nose grows, he's lying. Therefore, his nose isn't going to grow. Therefore, he was not telling the truth. I mean, it's like, it, it's a paradox. It doesn't work. Well, all of modern, modern philosophy is built on the Cretan's paradox. Okay? So for some other examples. Karl Marx's big discovery was that everything is, all of history moves in this materialistic dialectic process and the bourgeois and the, and the you know, the, the uh, proletariat's gonna rise up against the bourgeois and blah, 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 blah. These are force, these are deterministic forces at work in history. Well, what's the conundrum aspect? What's the paradoxical aspect of it? So, according to Marxism, everybody thinks in a certain way because of their economic situation. Well, then what's the obvious question? Did, did Marx think that way? So, my son, like, He's 14 now when he was 12. I was really proud of him. We were listening to Jordan Peterson, if you ever heard of that guy. Well, he was making a statement, and he's an Oscar, by the way. Um, he was making a statement that uh, all, like Young, Carl Young believed that all our ideas come from the dream, our dream life. And he kind of supported that idea. What did my son ask? Well, you know, all our ideas come from our dream life and are subjective because they all arise from our dream world. That came from your yeah, my son, well, did his ideas come from his dream world? Okay, so how do you escape that conundrum? There, there isn't a way to escape that conundrum. Certain people are granted a glimpse to see how things really are. See, you're all trapped in your white, yeah, pretty, well, yeah, white middle class, whatever. Your, your, your ways of thinking because you're Lutheran, because you're this, because you're that. You're all trapped in that. There's no escape from that unless you become... Woke. And then you have a glimpse at the way things truly are, and that's the moment of salvation, so to speak. That's when you really get it. Okay? And so that's why Gnosticism is popular today, because basically because of the Cretan paradox. It's, it's like the only way that you can get to that point. Alright. So let's talk about the Gnostic traits of that previous scenario um, with the two people discussing. A rational claim of truth is rejected out of hand, not for what it claims, but for what it is, a rational claim of truth. Have you been noticing this, you know, as you're looking at news or just being observant of things, that rationality itself is now seen as white privilege. Rationality itself, discussion, dialogue, good grammar is seen as white privilege. That, beware of that, because that's the destruction of language, a totally Gnostic vibe. Truth, rather, is merely a projection of inner psychic mechanisms on the patent screen of eternity rather than an honest reflection and of objective truth. What that means is what you guys think is truth is nothing more than you projecting onto your world these ideas that you think are eternal and universal and transcendent, but in reality are just rooted in what you are as physical human beings. For instance, okay, here's a man and a woman right there. Okay. Based on the fact that everybody you look at here is either a man or a woman, what would you conclude from that rationally? That there is a gender binary, right? And 
so now you start to speak according to that. You start using pronouns like he and her and, and she and him and, and all this kind of thing. You start having bathrooms, you know, man and women bathrooms. There, there's, all, there's this whole system and structure built around these, the gender binary. Well, now what are we finding? That there's, a, there's an inner self that's free of all gender that can, that can choose its own gender the way it wants it to be. Um, so therefore truth now, be, so truth, what, what you thought was truth is that there is a male and a female is really just you projecting onto these universal ideas what you think is truth. It, it's very toxic. So then an elite body of individuals kind of transcend the constructs the rest of us are blind to by being woke to them and we, we've talked about that. All right, let's begin with the Bible again. St. John's definition of the Antichrist. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. This is the most important verse here. It tells exactly who the Antichrist, you know, Antichrist. We hear that word, we think like, ooh, is it Saddam Hussein or is it Hitler? Or who is it, you know? And he's a freaky character. The Bible tells us exactly what the Antichrist is and what he believes. What does he believe? Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now already in the world and will be in the world to the end of time. That's a key point. Like, none of this should surprise us. It's here to the end of time. Now, let me ask you something. Which is the most famous flesh-denying heresy in history? Gnosticism. St. John is talking about Gnosticism. So understanding Gnosticism, this is real. As Christians, we believe that there is an Antichrist, and he's a real spiritual force. He believes a very genuine thing for very specific reasons going all the way back to the creation. And it is important for us to understand what's going on with this dynamic so we can understand the times, the times we're in. So, tell a little story. So eh, about 15 years ago, I was teaching Latin at uh, Toledo High School. And it was all Catholics in the class, but we had one evangelical. And he thought, oh, the teacher is Lutheran. He's going to be an ally of me. And it was kind of funny because I wasn't really an ally. But at, at one point, we got into a discussion of communion. We were talking about communion. And I asked him, I said, I quoted this verse. And I said, the Bible says that Anybody who denies that Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, but is of the Antichrist. And I was using that verse to prove communion. So in other words, Christ has come... Okay, for, let me just make it real simple for you. Is Christ present in the church? Yes. Um, is Christ in the flesh? Does he remain in the flesh? How do we know that? Because has come in the flesh. That's a perfect tense verb. He has come and still is in the flesh. Therefore, if Christ is in the church, will he be there in the flesh? Absolutely. That's what we call Holy Communion. That's what we call the baptizing the body of Christ. That's what we call the body of Christ. You are the presence of Christ in the church, right? He didn't like that. Because evangelicals don't believe that Christ, flesh and blood, is present in, in the Eucharist. So he proposed this. He said... Okay, well, God is bigger than the perfect tense. God is bigger than the perfect tense. 
So you Lutherans believe that Jesus is present because he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and he said, this is the church, and, and you know, John says, Christ has come in the flesh, and the Antichrist says otherwise. Um, but God is bigger than the perfect tense. In other words, if God wants to speak to my heart, you know, immediately outside of communion, if God wants to get me revved up to, you know, start jamming and, you know, come up with a whatever type song, God can do that because he's bigger than the perfect tense. What is problematic about that? Or what, how do we explain that? I mean, is God bigger than the perfect tense? That's an assault on language. Yes. Good, great point. And that, that's the issue at hand, is that the whole idea that what we're dealing with, when we're looking for ultimate truth, the word can't contain it. The truth is bigger than that. It's a classic Gnostic construct. Like, truth is bigger than language, which is, is that Christian? Not at all. That, that's exactly what St. John is warning against, this idea that, that Christ is no longer located in his flesh and blood, but is something that transcends flesh and blood, is something bigger than flesh and blood. So how do we, in fact, well, well, we'll get to this point when I get to my little construct. Uh, so thought the Gnostics. Truth is bigger than... Um, here's some quotes from Gnostics. The thing of the truth surpass every form and every sound. Does that make sense? So that's exactly what you said. So you, you made a statement, and all oh, the truth is bigger than language. It's bigger than sound. This is St. Irenaeus, who has this beautiful point that I thought describes your typical modern... Do you know that 50% of Americans believe God talks to them regularly? Like, not through the word of God, but they believe God talks to them. Okay. What? Oh. Um, well, here's a quote from St. Irenaeus of Leon. He says, They ascribe, talking about the Gnostics, they ascribe whatever they recognize in themselves as experiencing the divine logos. In other words, anything that they happen to experience, well, it must be God talking to my heart. That's, that's the world we live in, right? I just feel in my heart. I just feel in my heart. And I know the Bible says that, but I just feel in my heart. That's a challenge when you're trying to do apologetics. All right. Let's talk about the philosophical underpinnings of our own faith, Christianity. And I'm going to use a term here, logocentricity. I got it up here. Logocentricity. What that means, okay. The, log, the logos is a Greek verb. It's the word used in the passage. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But logos means more than just like a word on a page. Logos is the whole arrangement of words according to grammar, according to a rational sequence, and the bigger idea being that the logos, the logos grants us access to understanding our reality and nature around us. So in other words, I can, you know, here we go. I hear an organ being played, someone is practicing for Sunday service. I can say, someone is practicing the organ for Sunday morning service. That's a rational statement that reflects a truth going on. That's, that's what it means by logocentricity. It's the centrality, centrality and power of the word to convey reality, okay? And Christianity is all about that. It was a revolution historically because New paganism is, is well, I, I don't want to get into that, but paganism is like very tribal, 
very culture bound, very, you know, this is our God, that's your God, let's, you know, it's like a battle of gods type of scenario. There's no, there's no real understanding that there's a universal truth. Pentecost broke that whole, that whole arrangement. Spiritual but not religious. Well, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most important slides. When we talk about the Spirit, the modern American understanding of the Spirit is he's kind of this shiver you get up the spine. You know, he's this feeling you get in the heart. He's just like, oh, let's feel the Spirit. Spirit is here. We can feel his presence here. Okay? That's not the way Scripture reveals him at all. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene in Genesis 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2. And he begins the work of creating. And on each day of creation, he did three things, right? The first thing he did is he separated one thing from another. He separated, like, oh, the Spirit is a unifying thing. We don't, don't build walls, bring, build bridges, you know? Well, guess who the first big wall builder was? When the Lord said to the sea, you may come forth and go no further, you know? Here's a wall. You can't go further than this wall. That's building a wall. The Holy Spirit is a wall builder, and he always has been. So he separates one thing from another, whether it's cats from dogs or light from darkness, up from down, the sea from land. He separates things. You are all individual beings separated from one another. And what are the things that keep you separated from one another? Your flesh and blood. Your flesh and blood is the principle of separation and individuation for the human person. You are separated from, I assume, your wife? Yes. Because of flesh and blood. Okay? Um, so he separates one thing from another. What's the next thing he does? He names what arises from the separation of being in the created order. What, what arises from all these little material beings that arise? Naming. And what's that the basis of? That Adam himself continued. Language. Language arises from, could you have language if everything was blended as one, in one harmony? No, there's nothing to name. It's all undifferentiated oneness. There's nothing to name in that scenario. So language arises from the separation of being. And what's the third thing he does? He says, this is good. Gnostics reverse that entire order. The separation of being was a dangerous thing, it was bad, because that creates division. Now there's male and female, and they, now they're at odds with each other. Now there's different boundaries and races and, and, and nations and all this, and that, that's bad, that causes war. Um, and so the goal of the Gnostic, and this is part of their Gnostic myth, is to get back to that undifferentiated oneness. They call it the pleroma. That's the name for that. So, um, and does language have any value for a Gnostic then? If the only reason language arises is because there's these flesh material things that arise up, is, does language truly have any value then? No. Language just, language, language just reflects a delusive false world order anyways. Okay? And of course, this, it's not good, it's evil. Okay, so that's satanic. That's satanic. Satan was, was against the creation and the created order from the get-go, and, and this is why he's, um, th this is the stance he takes against it. All right. Logocentricity placed, and I'm going to go through this real quick. I love, I love using art to explain things, 
And here's a picture of Raphael's School of Athens. Notice, anybody who knows this painting, those are all philosophers in, the, in there. That archway represents the cosmic architecture, the cosmic order that we live in, the created order. Within the confines of the created order, what can all those people under that arch, what can they do? And what's the whole point of like Greek philosophy and Western, the Western philosophical tradition? What's the whole point of it? What's that? Find truth. Find truth. And you do it through discussion, talking. The scientific method is based in this. The scientific method is not an enemy of Christians. That it's a product of Christianity, the belief that there is, in fact, a universal truth that we can, we can get to. So that kind of explains the, you might say, the secular side of the Western order. Here is what Gnostic believes. There, there you see on the right side, you see the kind of the cosmic order, the, the cosmic arrangement, the, what I call the cosmic architecture. Well, what does this guy get to do? He gets to sneak out inside and see what's really going on. This cosmic arrangement was just set up by a, a usurper deity, a false god. Most people live under the delusions of this cosmic architecture, but me, I can see what's really going on. That, that's, that actually is Giordano Bruno, who was a hermeticist. Yeah? Uh, sounds like the creator of this Gnostic way is the ultimate car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the term there is subspecies eternitatis. It means that there's some people are granted the ability to see what's really going on in the world. Okay? And of course, us as Christians, what do we believe is the way to understand what's really going on in the world? Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Gospel, all that. Um, so here's an example of someone that thought that way. His name's Hegel. We talked about him before. So when he wrote his book, he, he wrote this. He said, to help bring philosophy closer to the form of science, to the goal where it can lay aside the title of love of knowing and be actual knowledge. That is what I have set before me. In other words, all these other philosophers, they're just kind of poking around and dabbling and talking and yummering and they're not getting anywhere. I've actually seen the truth and I'm going to tell you what it is. Just like every philosopher after him believed the same thing. Marx, all these guys. Um, all right. I'm going to skip that. So I'm going to go, so we'll hopefully make up some time here. <laughs> All right, we're going to go through the, this is the logocentric centric arrangement, and I'm going to, I, I do it in real simple terms. I always do this diagram in my Bible studies at my church. Um, this, this is fun. Okay. Oh, for, uh, this is another one. This is kind of like the School of Athens, but now what do you see at the heart and center? The altar and what's on it? The body of Christ. That right there. That right there is the answer to the blurring of being, the blurring of distinction, the blurring of language. Is our claim that no, meaning, truth, the essence of the universe is, has become flesh and is located in this thing, bread, that we can see and identify. And Having discussion about that sacrament, having discussion about what Christ had to do to make that sacrament available, that is the highest philosophy, you might say. And uh, that's the answer, really, to, to the confusion we're in. All right. Let's do this. God and man. There's God, there's man. What's the problem between the two? What? 
Well, what's the, what do we call that? Fall and that introduced what into the world? Sin. sin. All right, sin. Who makes the move to solve that problem, God or man? God. Arrow goes down. What, it, what does that mean? Who, what is, who is that? Jesus. Jesus, okay? So Jesus is God and man. Jesus, of course, is pure God and, and man as one person. All right. So now let's understand what that means. If you were a leper in the time of Christ and you sought to be healed of your leprosy, where would you go? To Jesus. To Jesus. And how do you know where Jesus is? What signals the presence of Jesus in your world? And you're back and Jesus is there. How do you know that, oh, there's Jesus? What, what anchors him there? Really, don't even want to overthink this. <laughs> what? His body. His body, his blood, locates Jesus in place and time and says, oh, that's where I need to go. If I go to the left, six feet of Jesus, to the tree, you know, a sycamore tree sitting there and say, oh, heal me, have mercy, give, heal my leprosy, will you be healed? If you go to the right to Peter and James and John standing over there and say, hey, you guys seem to have authority, well, heal me, will you be healed? No. Is God not present here? Yes. Yes. Well, what's the difference between the way God is present here and the way God is present there? Interesting issue, right? But it's apt. It is critical. What? Is deity is God nature? God's nature is everywhere. He's omnipresent, right? He's He's everywhere. Flesh and blood. Huh? Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. Well, that, and that's, but what's the difference between the way he is present in Christ versus the way he is present outside of Christ? In other words, I could, you know, if I was a leper, I could go over here and say, oh, you know, Lord, heal me. And then the speaker falls on my head and I die. <laughs> if I go to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy, he'll have mercy on me. So what's, God is present over there. What's the difference with the way he is present there versus the way he's present elsewhere? He intends to be found there. Yes. He doesn't intend to be found there. Right, exactly. Every, he might be, but only through natural knowledge and all that. Um, but Luther put it beautifully. He said, yes, it's true, God is everywhere. But where is he for you? You know, without a doubt, when you go to that area, and what's it, what, what are the boundaries of it? His flesh. If you go where his flesh is, you know you're going to get the merciful God. He will be given as a gift. He will be doing the work. He will be managing God's will towards you. That's, a, that's an expression I like to use. God will be managing his work among you. When you go over to the corner and start saying, God, I believe you're here. Now who's managing who God is? You are. You're projecting your own ideas and desires onto what you want God to be for you. Only in Christ, you have to kind of like say, hey, you're in charge of you. You do you, like people say. You do you. And Jesus does it in a wonderful way, right? I'd rather have Jesus do Jesus than, than me do him, okay? All right. <sighs> Jesus goes up to heaven, what does he do? Sends the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit works among us through four different ways. Baptism, communion, uh, preaching, absolution, right? 
So now we're talking the church. So everything that was true about Jesus at the time of Christ is now true of the church as well. Is there flesh and blood in the church? Is there a located point for all God's gifts? You, you know, if you get a prayer cloth and start waving around your head and do five jumping jacks because some prophet, you know, some evangelical prophet, charismatic prophet said you should do that, will you be forgiven? No. Will you get forgiven when you go to the body and blood of Christ at communion? And yeah, you're guaranteed because the promise of Christ is located there. Now, this is not C to be Walter. <laughs> so you got the same thing going on here as you did with Christ. What are the boundaries of that process? What are the boundaries of where Christ is located in the church? Physical, flesh and blood, things. It's the means of grace, all right? And then our faith has the exact contours of those gifts. So, you know, faith, that's what faith is. Faith takes the exact contours of the gift given, all right? Um, what defines, delineates, denominates the borders? Um, well, what does? How do we know, you know, how do we know that Christ is located in bread and, and wine at Holy Communion? Sorry, I'm picking it because it's right here and I'm back here. <laughs> but, um, and how did he institute it? What did he use to... This is my words, words, words. Words define the borders. So it doesn't matter when you're sitting in Bible class and you're talking with your pastor and you go over a scripture and you start getting into, well, what does that word mean? And what's the context of that word? And how is this word being used? And is, is that important? That's meditation. That's what the book of Psalms in, in the Old Testament says is meditation. You take these words of God and let them roll around and, you know, like jewels. You know, you're just like, ah, oh, what are these words? Do we live in that world anymore? No. Grammar has to be destroyed because freedom of expression. And now who's, mani now who's managing, just like we said before, God is managing his person and his will. Who, when you break down grammar, when you break down language, when you break down all this stuff, now who's managing your reality? You are. Oh, I'm a female. Can't you tell? A skinny one, too. A young one. All right, so the word confess. Who or what manages God's person? He does. That's one of the most important things. God manages his person. You don't. And that's the beauty of it, because we do an awful job of it. All right. Gnosticism starts fuzzifying the borders. That's Gnosticism. It fuzzifies the borders out of existence, and now the self projects who God is going to be. So, logocentricity is reality and meaning are external to the subject and managed by itself. So, you know, what is this? What does it do? Moves a cursor around. What's managing your understanding of this thing? This. It's external to you, right? You don't say, well, that looks like a bar of gold that I'm going to sell for $2 million. You can think all you want. It doesn't matter. Who manage Okay, now this is where it gets interesting. Who manages your person as you deal with other people? Let's tuck that one in the back of our thought for later. Because well, we'll dive into it right now. When you meet someone else, who manages your person to that other person? 
I mean, who do you want to manage that rear person? Ultimate that other self. Yourself, yeah. And how do you do so? You okay. kind of have that same thing Jesus, God went through, right? You've got certain means of grace of your own person that you use to manage your person as you meet other people. And what would those be? Your words. Your words. Your actions. actions. Your body language. Body language. Um, your face. Your expressions. And, you know, you give me your name. All these things. What happens when people become distanced from one another and all they have is an image of that person and they're no longer controlling their own message, so to speak, who's controlling it? And now who's managing that other person? The receiver. The receiver. They're managing who that is. Are we living in a world that's becoming more atomized and people are separated from one another? And I just see a little face on a oh, let's say a Facebook page sliding over and, and oh, they say that, they must be that. Who's managing that person's existence? I am. Well, the Gnostic myth that we're going to get into explains the, the psychic dynamics going on with that. And what we do is we place that person according to this psycho, this psychodrama, this Gnostic psychodrama and this narrative that is, is, is very toxic. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right. Gnosis. Any knowledge based on the external world is nothing more than a projection of inner psychological faculties. True knowledge transcends every materialistic uh, faculty and arises from an awakened self. All right. The Gnostic myth. All right. We're actually doing a reasonably good time here. Here's the Gnostic myth. All right. And this is... Um, Understand that the Gnostic myth is not like, like when we talk about the creation story, we believe that happened, right? When they talk about the Gnostic creation story, this is all kind of an inner psychological archetypal act action. It's not, it just didn't really happen. It's more of an archetype of what happened. It's, a, it's an inner, in the ancient world, they had this strong belief that what's going on inside you has a parallel to what's going on in the greater cosmos. The microcosm had a relationship to the macrocosm. All right? So here's the Gnostic myth. It begins, uh, that's what I just said. All right. Begins with this being thing called the monad. Monad is the Greek word for one. It's essentially their god, but the, what's, what's the paradox that I just introduced there when I named that thing god? What have I just done? construct of God, right? So that's why Gnostics really can't use human language to define who the monad is. So they call them the transcendent one, the eternal father, the source, the, you know, names can't describe them. God is above names. Coexist anybody? <laughs> um, now this is where it gets weird, but I'm just, you know, just lay it off. So from the monad, became this kind of rippling effect of they're called scissorgies and they're male and female scissorgies in perfect harmony and they kind of rippled out from the center of being in the cosmic realm that makes sense right but you got all these these rippling outs okay and, and all this together is called the pleroma the fullness everything is in perfect harmony everything is in in just a perfect state of bliss everything is as one Okay? with the monad as the center. The last one of these rippling, these are also the eons. You might have turned the term the eons. The last eon, it was a 
woman named Sophia, or a female entity called Sophia, who decided to create something without her male counterpart. Okay? So she's going to go off and do something on her own. This is why some people say Gnosticism is patriarchal. <laughs> so Sophia is going to create something of her own without her, her male counterpart's uh, permission. Well, she makes something, she makes a monster. She makes a, a monster named Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth is a monster because it wasn't made in this harmonious, perfect system that should, things should have been made. Yaldabaoth, one of the one of the texts says that she aborted him. She was a, it was a monster, so he aborted. She aborted this monster. Well, anyways, he still lives, and to hide him from the monad because monad's disappointed that she made this thing without the permission. She takes Yaldabaoth, hides him in a cloud, and Yaldabaoth now believes that he's the only being in the world. Right? Yaldabaoth proceeds to make the known world as we know it. In other words, who's Yaldabaoth? What? No. God. It's the God of the Old Testament. He's the one that created the world. He's the one that created the universe. He created the universe to reflect this original pleroma, you know, the original pleroma, and he kind of had it as a copy of that, but uh, but it's it's a degraded, perverted form of it. So he makes this he makes the known universe. So really, the Old Testament God is actually the this mistake, this cosmic mistake from Sophia. All right. Now. To make a very, very long, complex story short, Yaldabaoth makes some humans. Sophia has compassion on these humans and decides to put the spark of monad in each of these flesh and blood creations. So certain of these flesh and blood creations have the divine spark of monad in them, but Yaldabaoth doesn't know it. He doesn't like it. So who snuck into Yaldabaoth's creation and tried to give the human creations a bit of knowledge of the way things really are? Satan did, right? Satan snuck into the garden and said, hey, I'm going to give you the tree of the knowledge, which is gnosis. It's the same word in Greek, gnosis, knowledge. I'm going to give you knowledge of what's really going on, the good of what monad is and the evil of this God that you think created you. So Satan ends up being what? The good, the good guy. Classic. That's Satanism. All right. So the construct now set up is that you're born in this world. You're born with your flesh and blood. You think that you're an individual, a male or female. You think that you're born in a family. You think that you're born in a country. You think that you're growing up in a church. But in reality, you have this divine spark that is going to transcend all these constructs. And one by one, and this is kind of the, you know, you're born in this world, and there's your country, there's your binary, gender binary, there's your family, there's your church, there's your state, there's the, you know, the civil authorities, there's marriage, there's law, and there's the man. You have to take all these layers of the construct off as you ascend your way out of the world back into that pleroma. All right? 
And, uh, okay, so, so this, this is antinomianism, the liberating the shackled self. Yaldabaoth and his archons rule with his laws. These laws dictate the various systems and institutions that govern how things work in this universe. We are born under these laws and must escape their shackles. So if you believe that innately you're not male or female, but you are a abstracted self that really belongs into the Pleroma and this world has nothing to do with you, but your world is telling you that you're male or female, okay? And now you walk and you see this two bathrooms up here. This is, an, this is a violent, this is, a, this is an act of oppression on you. What do you have a right to do? Huh? Break it down, tear it down, destroy it. If you see a police officer who represents the system of oppression, that is an act of violence on you. You have a right to do what to him? Shoot up. Remember when Jesus said that the day is coming when people are going to think they're doing a pious work? When they do a religious work, when they persecute you? This is where we're at right now. Because all these oppressions, family, you want to destroy the family. Family, church, state, no borders. Church, you know, spiritual but not religious. All these classic institutions that sort of define who we are, the Gnostics say, no, nah, that's your delusion, that's your self, that's your, they call it the ego, the ego person. Your self, your inner self needs to ascend out of that, and that's where salvation comes from. The archons. <laughs> now, what, so, I mean, I, I just saw that picture, and I'm like, they don't even understand what's going on here. Like, I mean, why is that just, I mean, first off, what's the major problem, number one? They're all men. They're all, they're appearing before Congress and talking about, uh, Consciousness, as far as is uh, during the healthcare thing, and they're going to force hospitals to do abortions, and they're saying no, that's wrong. So, I mean, males, the patriarchy—that's classic, the patriarchy. What's another problem? Kind of seeing most of the people there. I don't know the guy on the left, white. Indian or something, but uh, yeah, white. You know, so you got that going in, and then what's the third big problem? Clergy. Oh. This is oppression on steroids, right? White, male, cisgendered, whatever, you know, uh, what's the, heterosexual, males, white, all of it. You know, that's like strike one, two, three, four, five, and six. These, but these are the archons. Now, the Yaldabaoth, after he created the world, set up these archons, and these are the rulers, the people that rule, the, they're the man. They're the, you know, the, the big, they're the ones that set up the structures and the, and the systems of this world that everybody's oppressed by. These are the archons, the powers. And notice how the critical race theory speaks in those terms, like um, the power structures. I mean, it's just they're using the exact language that Gnosticism uses. It's, it's stunning. So Sophia is the one that, that sends a Christ figure, and this is where it gets into the theology. And Sophia says, come away from the divisions in this world and the fetters, and already you have resurrection. That's from the Gospel of Thomas. Or dissolve the division. Again, division and separation is bad. Dissolve the division of you between one another. And bring the warm pleroma of love so that there should be unity of perfect thought. That's what Sophia does. Um, all right, well. So the archetypes of this myth are you got the pleroma. Um, the pleroma is the self prior to you kind of becoming in your, in your bodies bound by all these constructs. 
There's your self person, who's your hidden, your hidden spark connection to the pleroma and, and the monad. And then there's your, your ego person, is who you think you are by your family, your country, your church, capitalism, all the systems that we're kind of oppressed by. Sophia is the divine feminine. She's the, she's the one that kind of re-begins re or rediscovers the integration. She helps humanity through Gnosis, all right? Then you have Yaldabaoth and the Archons, and I showed that picture. Yaldabaoth and the Archons are the man, the clergy state, you know, all, all the people that represent the, the sources of oppression that keep you down. Christ is not, you know, the divine savior who came in flesh. Christ is more like a cosmic guru, a divine messenger from the, the monad. All right. Now, so we've come up to 8 o'clock, and I'm going to spend like three or four minutes just really quickly going through the traits. We covered a lot of it. You, you should be able to get what's going on here. We talked about this. The namelessness of God. Who are you to say that God is Jesus Christ? Right? God is above names. God is bigger than just, well, he's bigger than the perfect tense. He's bigger than Jesus. He's bigger than all that. Very popular understanding of God. That's the spiritual, but not religious. God can't be contained by an institution. The divine feminine, that's a big deal. I won't get too much into that. Except to say that a big belief is that rationality, argumentation, even science now, is understood as part of a patriarchal age. You know, because that's how men think, right? Very linearly, and very, like, logically. And women are more intuitive and thinking more broadly. I mean, is that not a construct? Like, but, um, but that's sort of the thinking. Is We're moving to a new age where patriarchalism is going to come to an end. Um, all right, separation as the cosmic evil. We talked about that. John Lennon's song, Imagine, is kind of the classic example of that. Uh, there's a connection between Gnosticism and magic, and that's a whole other session on the, the role of media and how media is really magic um, that we're going to dabble in a little bit. Transcending the Logos, we spoke a lot about this. Let me, let me read some of these quotes. Transcending the Logos, meaning words and sounds and language cannot contain ultimate truth. Gospel of truth, the truth surpasses every form and every sound. Exegesis of the soul, it is by being born again that the soul will be saved. And this is not, just look at this phrase, I love this. This is not due to rote phrases or to professional skills or to book learning. Who might say something like that to a Lutheran who learns the catechism by rote phrases? Oh, I don't get into all that. It's, salvation isn't about book learning. It's all about you know, being born again. You know, kind of evangelicals have that a little bit. Sufis were Muslim Gnostics, and they asked this wonderful question, why is the sound of an onion? <laughs> now, where did I, I saw an ad today, or I heard an ad today. Oh, evidently, Hope feels like togetherness. It's a nonsensical statement. Hope feels like togetherness. Or it's even, it was even worse than that. I, I ruminated and I'm like, that makes no sense. It's like exactly like this, why is the sound of an onion? This makes no sense. Coke is sugar water. Is that because of the song? I don't know. <laughs> but evidently, drinking Coke makes you one with everybody. I mean, there is that. We love it. Cause the world to sing or whatever. Gospel of the Egyptians. This is a wonderful quote from the Gospel of the Galatians. Pure nonsense. Charismatic. 
You know, that transcends the word. There's more interesting going on with vowels. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, this, stuff, this is one of the rooms you go into, and it's like, oh, okay, a bunch of vowels there. And also, you, you, you've come across some authors like, yeah, those vowels are where you're going to find ultimate truth. Like the vowel, not consonants, vowels. Because what do consonants do? Stop! They set up walls! <laughs> Seriously! This is the madness we're in. I, I read something recently where someone was saying that letters themselves, the invention of letters, the 26 letters of the alphabet, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, it's a patriarchal development. Because Egypt, they had more, you know, kind of intuitive the symbols and there's more, it was just more well, Gnostic. I mean, there's like a whole revolution that happened when we went from symbols that only priests understood, elite priests understood to letters that everybody could understand and whatever. You know, it's just nonsense. Marilyn Ferguson, language frames our thought, thus setting up barriers. You know, grammar and language binds you and you, to have true expression, you gotta burst through grammar, you gotta get rid of grammar. Paul Davies, a romantic, a uh, scholar of romanticism. We can say that just as the creation is the dual dualitude of an original unity, so language is the refraction into parts of what in principle is a whole. So that's exactly what we've been saying, is that language reflects the creation, and if, if we reject all of creation, we need to reject language. This is why the debate right now is over language. All right, I'm going to skip this part. What? All right, well, so we talked about this. Logocentricity, you got two people talking. There's an objective quanta of objective data called a cat that two people can communicate about, and cat is not an imposition on the other person. It's just saying, that's a cat. Gnosticism looks at it as that person's mind, you know, the person that's speaking kind of has this fuzzy relationship to this thing out there and says, oh, that's a cat. Well, now he's imposing this construct on the other person that becomes a chain on his mind that he has to escape. Uh, transcending gender, that you hopefully have been seeing that. That comes, that goes back to the Gnostics, the Bogomils. Gender is alien to identity imposed by the devil. The idea of having a gender, the gender binary, imposed by the devil. Gnostics were the first to say that. Elaine Pagels, Gnostic scholar from the 70s and 80s. Separation of Eve from Adam is how we became dis disintegrated. You know, that, that was all the beginning of the problem. Rudolf, another Gnostic scholar. For the Gnostics, this is a very important statement here. For the Gnostics, bisexuality, meaning transgenderism, is an expression of perfection. You know, you being divided is bad. You being brought into harmony. Mystical religions, and oh, yeah, we won't get into that one. But it, it's a thing. Let's just say it's a thing. You know, like castration. You, you, you basically get all hyped up and ecstatic and then castrate yourself and then become part of the, all right. Yeah, we're gonna have to end here, but um, love, love is cosmic bungee cord. Love, Gnostics are all about eros and self-love because it's all about, who are you? <laughs> I mean, like, what are you relative to me? Uh, in the Gnostic system, not yet. <laughs> so I love you as a neighbor. Yeah. In the Gnostic system, what are you relative to me? You're a mistake of the cosmos, just as I am. Yeah. What, what I have to, I mean, you're, the best thing that could happen to you is all of us just kind of die. Yeah. So it's you're, why would I love you? Yeah. But I do love something. I love <laughs> Sophia. And sometimes Sophia might talk to me and come to me through certain pretense characters, you know, like a love affair, 
It's a whole different story. And, and so love then becomes something transcendent. Like illicit love becomes something transcendent and Gnostic. And this is one of my favorite quotes that, maybe we'll start next thing off with that, but this woman is evil. Um, we'll, we'll get to her. So agape versus eros, compassion versus passion, again, there's a lot of Other traits, they're elitist. They believe in a new age, which we'll talk about in the next session. And they believe in this idea of palingenesis, of born-again experience. And this ascent experience as immediate resurrection. All right. And don't trust Gordon Peterson. He's fun to listen to. He's got a lot of good things to say. He's an asshole. <laughs> All right. Take a break. <laughs> Hey, well, we were supposed to have questions, though, so go ahead. I just want to make a comment, but I found this very interesting that in the Christian world, sin came to the world through one man, Adam. Mm -hmm. Through the Gnostic world, sin came through a woman, Sophia. That's a good point. And the other, in, in the Christian world, sin is a moral problem, right? It's you did something God told you not to do. It's not that the creation is evil. There's nothing evil about the creation. You did something God told you not to do. In the Gnostic world, what's the evil? Creation. The creation itself. So you're not evil because you do sin. You're evil because you are. Because <laughs> you exist. Isn't that just diabolical? Well, she screwed up because she did something without permission. From right. Her yep. Without her, yeah, without her uh, male counterpart. Uh, yes? An example of uh, Gnosticism in modern media that can be found in the where you see the two love interests and the final scene, the one very, you know, let's say, passionate lover of this woman lets her go with her husband. The unrequited love. This is the thing that Sophia so called has that he's, you know, you can't get it. And the best thing you can do is just to die. Yeah. And, uh, Ooh, I like that. It's, anyway, it's, it's just amazing to me that you can see these influences even in modern. TV I know Pastor Daisy likes to write a lot of good, sensible things that are said. But yet in that, I see elements of Gnosticism. Yeah. The unrequited love, like the love that will never be, you can't get. It's just this feeling. What's funny that you mentioned that because it's actually good. But I, in my book, I talked, I contrasted Casablanca with Saving Private Ryan. And I used Casablanca as kind of like the old view of, you know, I'm going to, you know, our love doesn't matter to a uh, hill of beans, right? I, I have to disclose that I've read about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? I have yeah. a point here, yeah. Pastor Burfine. Early on in your presentation, you pointed out that a lady was talking to another lady, and uh, she objected to apparently the use of language. I want to know what did she use to point that particular thing out? This is the paradox. Yes. This is so. Frederick Nietzsche is sort of the classic philosopher who began this whole skepticism towards language. And my big thing with him is, every time he writes a sentence, he's entrapped by what he's critiquing. And he himself knows this, which is why he has to like do this ironic, well, it's ultimately why he went insane, died insane. Because it's, it's a paradox, it can't be explained. But every modern thinker ultimately has that paradox going on. Uh, yes. Is there, uh, how long do we have, how long will we be waiting before the, uh, they, they decide to dissolve the boundaries of days into week, weeks into seven days? Ooh. When that we, is interesting. When are we going to push beyond that barrier yeah. of just the Because that goes back to the creation. 
that's that's one of the divisions. <coughs> that so has there ever been a has there ever been a time in these movements where they tried to abolish the seven day week? You know what? That's that's funny that you mentioned it. Wait, this is what's fun about understanding this is anything that defines or delineates or sets order that's based on the created order is subject to being torn down. So I would not be surprised if that got to be that way. You know, like people will be like, why are we constricted to this? You know, I'm sure that is still going on, but you, you can't escape the day. I mean, that's the problem is you can't escape certain things. Yeah. There is a historical example of that. The French? Destroying God's creation, maybe you're going to touch on it later. But it is the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, try to make a 10-day week, I guess. Anything else? All right. Oh. Yeah, I was, yeah. You, you named all the elements of, of the Gnostic mm -hmm. uh, myth. What, was that all in place when John was writing his? There was a proto-Gnosticism going on. Um, it was right around that time. It was right around that time. So, like the Valentinians were later second century, but there, I mean, I think Paul dealt with Gnostic influences and proto-Gnostic influences in Corinth. And if that's the case, then some of these things would have been more developed. And there's, there's Gnosticism per se, and then there's Christian Gnosticism. And that myth comes from secular Gnosticism, I guess. And so that, I, I think some of those terms. Well, John does use some of these terms, and he tries to use them. I'd have to think through this, like Sophia and Wisdom. He tries to get the proper understanding of that against Gnosticism. So I would say, yeah, he was familiar with those ideas. All right. A few minutes for a break, or? Yeah, a few minutes, and uh, just to let you know, well, Tony wants you to know that uh, the food is free. There is a little box for donations if you want. So I forgot to say that before, but again, the food is free to you, so don't don't feel obligated. But if you'd like to give, that's fine. So. You guys have other questions? I'm happy to field questions. We don't have a lot of time, so. I can because that's an old film noir with the fabulous
minute warning. Five minute warning. So for those who are in conversation, we'll be starting at uh, 8:35. 8:35. Five minute warning. Seven minutes. Yeah.